You're listening to FBI 94.5 and this is Canvas, a show about art and ideas created by a team of artists. We are broadcasting <laughs> from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and we pay respects to our Indigenous listeners and their elders past and present. My name is Nat Randall. My name is Abdul Abdullah. My name is David Capra. And thanks for joining us this morning. Today we have a bumper full to the brim program Full of guests and full of exciting conversations, I hope. Uh, Jonathan Jones is talking about his collaborative project for This Is A Voice at the Powerhouse Museum. Three artists from this year's edition of Primavera at the Museum of Contemporary Art are in to talk about the upcoming show. The artist slash photographer extraordinaire Gary Trin will be joining us to talk all things art and photography. But first we have in the studio this week's music creator, Minnie Graff. Welcome to the studio. Good oh, morning. Good morning. Good morning, good morning Minnie. Hi. Can we, um, can we hear about how you first entered the world of, of street art? Ooh, good question. <laughs> yeah. Back in, uh, oh, showing my age a little bit, back in the mid-90s um, in New Zealand, uh, kia ora, bros, any bros out there? Don't want to mention the rugby if Australians <laughs> are in the room. Uh, yeah, I, um, I started doing street posters and stickers um, and it was all inspired by a project I'd studied undergrad graphic design and one of my lecturers asked me to ask to produce a poster that, or a work of art that um, communicated with the audience. And so I did a street poster and it did communicate with the audience and uh, I was hooked. Do you remember there. what that poster was? Yeah, it was, um, it was a parody of a drugs, uh, uh, sort of pastiche of a, a drug commercial. And it was, um, we were sitting around with some friends. Um, we were like, how cool will it be if there was a phone number? 0800 drugs for me. And um, and so I did that poster. Yeah, I used to do snowboarding, you know. I'm not really a pot smoker, but anyway. Um, and uh, so I did a poster, 0800 drugs for me, and bought the number and um, screen printed it up around the streets and people called the line. And uh, my flatmates answered the phone and we were just like telling people it was an art project and thanks for calling. <laughs> and uh, I got a massive phone bill at the end of it because every call costs money, right? So, yeah, anyway, that was the power of the poster, yeah. <laughs> and so we can see your work around L.A., but we can see it al around Sydney as well. And so some of the things I've seen around town are Sydney. I feel like we are in different places, and Sydney, we need to talk. What are your concerns with Sydney? What do you think we need to talk about at well, the moment? where do we start? I mean, mm. there's, um, you know... Good on you for spotting the posters. Nice. <laughs> and uh, I've been getting up in some of my favourite spots lately. You know, it's about um, how Sydney seems to be changing at a rapid rate. And we, we feel, I feel, um, I've been working in the streets in Sydney since 2002, 2003, that um, the City Council zero tolerance, um, the changes in emphasis on um, what's important in the city, um, for example, the sort of... Um, developments that are happening around the city, the changes here in Redfern, you know, just walking down here to the station, all the apartment buildings going up, um, and the, um, you know, the lockout laws, the the art schools under threat, you know, National Art School right smack in the middle of Sydney, SCA over in Roselle. So you and Sydney need a bloody D&M, don't yeah, you? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, man. It's, yeah, I think, you know, I'm concerned. Yeah. about the lack of, you know, and I, from a street art perspective, like I like to see the writing on the wall, you know, it takes us to the first track. We're going to, you know, it's about 
I feel a city, I feel a city that's tagged up, posted up, you know, um, is vibrant and people have a chance to speak and you feel like the city's alive, you know. Now, now recently you were in a show at Blacktown and there's a really nice catalogue online. If you if you jump online at home and go to Blacktown Arts Centre, you can you can see that catalogue. Now, you had a series of posters there. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, sure. Um, I actually brought the catalogue in. Oh, beauty, oh, guys. And the show so, is It's Our oh. Thing. Yeah, It's Our Thing. And um, look, the, the poster that's in the catalogue... Um, it's really interesting because uh, I'm mad on posters. I um, I found out a group about a group called uh, um, Garage Graphics that mm. operated out of Western Sydney that I'd never yeah. heard of before. They're amazing. They're amazing. The archive is exceptional. And I don't know how I didn't know about them before. I did a talk at the National Gallery last year, and and they asked me to investigate there, have a look through their archives, and see what I could find. And um, and I found this box of Garage Graphics posters and it just blew my mind. So I had an interview with um, Marla Guppy mm. and um, Lynn, one of the coordinators of Garage Graphics earlier in the year. And when I was approached to be involved in It's Our Thing, I thought I've just got to do a poster about Garage Graphics. And what happened was Paul Howard, the curator out there at Blacktown Arts Centre, he said, oh, I've got a key to a container and I think the Garage Graphics Studio's in there. Oh. And I'm like, what the? And so he's like, well, let's go open the container. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's my poster. So the poster ended up being a shipping container label, a giant shipping container label that suggested that they open up that container and set up the screen print studio and get it operational again. So we went out there ceremonially and sort of cere- as a ceremony, po- opened up the shipping container, pasted or pasted the label on, opened up the shipping can- container, and and um, it's pretty remarkable what was in there. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Now this question comes out of personal curiosity and also maybe a bit of naivety, but it, it seems that Instagram seems to be an important platform for street artists as, as they develop and get audiences. Am I? Oh, I could be actually completely wrong here, but judging by your facial expression, but it was. Uh, I was going to say, is there any is there any accounts that we should be following? That? Well, I mean, my Minigraph Insta account is where it's at. Yeah. But I don't tend to. I still get a little nervous because some of the work I do, well, actually, all of the work I do, is unsanctioned, and um, you know, there's that push pull relationship between wanting the community to see what I'm doing and wanting to share my questions and work with people but also wanting to keep it on the down low a little bit Mm. for obvious reasons yeah so um there is some work up there but it's not necessarily all of it um now Minigraph we uh have just about run out of time but we've got a real treat for you for everyone listening today because Mini has uh can I call you Mini um (laughs) Mini has curated our tracks today um can you talk us through this selection and, and perhaps how some of these artists have influenced you and your practice? They are very good. Yeah. By oh, the way. <laughs> oh, thanks. I was a little bit nervous. Like, um, look, I um, there's a couple of big ones here. You know, for what it's worth, the Buffalo Springfield track um, is amazing. That's all about the protests down on Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. And I just listening to that when you guys asked me to put, I was just like, this is so pertinent right now, you know? Mm. And, um, Stevie Wonder Superstition. I mean, it's sort of, it's just a freaking great track. Um, it's so awesome that you've got Scram there by Plump DJs. That's one of the tracks I listen to when I go out on the street. Oh, wow. Pretty fast track. <laughs> I used to be really into breaks. In fact, I still love breaks. Who doesn't love breaks, right? And um, yeah, so yeah, that's a bit of a rundown. Amazing. Can you introduce our first track for so us? So what we've got is Stevie Wonder coming up and Superstition.
Thank you, Minnie.
sounds of Lily Madden. Um, we are joined in the studio by uh, with Jonathan Jones, a Wiradjuri Camilleroy artist who is one of the most celebrated contemporary Indigenous artists working today. His work has been exhibited in more than 60 major Australian and international art museums, galleries, festivals and biennials. And we are joined this morning. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. Who counted that? That's oh, crazy. That was a number that I found. You, just, you yeah, didn't wow. write that no, number? No, I didn't write that number. That's crazy. It's actually 60. Can you just explain what um, what we just listened to? That was beautiful. Yeah, that's the extraordinary um, young Lily Madden. Um, so some of you probably know Lily's um, granddad, Uncle Chicka Madden. Um, and Lily, um, I've been working with Lily for a couple of years now, doing working with her on Sydney language. So they're from Gadigal country, um, and she's been learning Sydney language as part of some art projects that we've been working on together. And that was, in fact, the first time she's written a song all on her own um, and provided and 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 sung it. And it was part of the exhibition down at the Powerhouse Museum at the moment. That's right. And the the exhibition is called "This Is a Voice," which reveals the power of the voice before and beyond words and you were talking about you this being a kind of ongoing thing and you did that big amazing project for the Sydney Festival the Bayala which means speak in in local language um how did how did the project come about like the the the, the kind of beginning of it all the first project really was actually the Caldor project which was um in the Botanic Gardens which was Barangaljara um and that project was looking at you know, lost objects, objects that had been destroyed um, in the Garden Palace fire uh, in the 1800s. And we went to a number of communities and got communities to respond to lost objects with language. Um, And Lil um, and her sisters um, responded for the Sydney language. So they just read a list of Sydney um, words um, for objects. And they're beautiful, beautiful objects that help make sense of this country. So Nawi is a canoe, Um, Bira is a fish hook, Um, Murugulnir is the fishing net. So words that kind of make sense of living in this beautiful part of town. Um, And then the second project we did um, was for the Sydney Festival. Um, And that was actually looking at the word list um, from collected by Dawes, William Dawes. Um, And he was one of the, he was an astronomer with the First Fleet. And he had an extraordinary relationship with the Aura people and gathered together what we know so far is just three notebooks of the Sydney language. And, And they're really, I guess, the... You know, they're the, they're the kind of heart of, of Sydney language today. That's what everyone's building off, these extraordinary um, lists that he collected. And Lil just read them cover to cover. Um, and, and it was extraordinary act of claiming back 
um, those words, claiming back that history. Um, and we played them for the whole duration of Sydney Festival on Dawes Point, where they were originally collected. Um, and then this work came along. So Lil has just kind of taken the Sydney language and done some amazing things with it. And you can see a lot of her stuff on online too. Like she she does all those amazing words of the day, which yeah. I'm you know incredibly ignorant as many um, Australians would be in relation to to language. Um, where do those notebooks or the the notes exist now? Are they well, so poor Dawes, he um, he didn't get along with Governor um, Philip. Um, there were some clashes there. Unfortunately, he he was an extraordinary man. Um, I'd encourage everyone to read Ross Gibson's book um, about Dawes and, and looking at his life. And he, in fact... Um, yeah, so it didn't quite get... had a number of sort of collisions with, with, with Philip, so I got sent away. Um, and all we know is that these three very small, very small notebooks showed up in the... I'm going to get this wrong, the African and uh, Oceanic uh, University of Library over in UK. I'm sure someone will know that better than me. Um, and, and there are these just three little notebooks sitting over there filled with these extraordinary ideas and so stories about Sydney. Um, now, many people um, will know the, the big project that you did with Caldor, um, Skin and Bones, um, and it's one of the most ambitious projects that I think Sydney's really seen, um, and one of the most ephemeral as well. When you get scale, you often don't get a kind of sense of ephemerality. You get giant phallic objects that are <laughs> locked, locked in the centre of town forever. Now, how did, how did this come to fruition, and when did you first read about the Garden Palace? Oh, well, the Garden Palace, well, um, probably almost 20 years ago, I um, went into the Australian Museum and um, was trying to find things that I could connect with. Um, so as you said before, my family's Gamilaroi and Wiradjuri. Um, so big, big land groups, you know, like we take up a fair footprint of New South Wales. Um, so you'd think that there'd be some stuff representing us in Australia's oldest museum. Um but you go in there and it's really difficult to find anything that represents you. Um, and that's that, that, that was kind of my awakening. I tried to start unpacking why I couldn't go into this extraordinary museum, which is material from right across the world, really important collections, um, and I can go in there and, you know, from two big communities and not feel connected. Um, and the um, the person who looks after the objects there, an extraordinary Aboriginal guy, Phil Gordon, um, said to me, well, you know, there was a fire um, and told me the story about um, all of those objects being housed in this extraordinary building that were then destroyed and lost in a fire. Um, and that was kind of the moment for me that I started constantly trying to unpack that story. And... Um, I think for me, I, I remember at the time I felt shattered. I felt that, you know, this was this dreadful, dreadful story about... And I felt like I'd been kicked in the guts, um, being told that everything... We did have all this stuff. We were amazing. We did have beautiful objects, um, that they were all put together in this extraordinary museum, but we burnt them all. Um, and Under that, suspicious circumstances too, I've read. Yeah, it's kind of suspicious. It's sort of unknown. It's just an absolute, you know, no one really knows anything. And the biggest thing for me in that 20 years that I've been trying to unpack is how to tell that story and not make people feel the same dreadful feeling that I felt that day um, and so that we could move forward with it.
Um, and as part of the preparation for that work, you helped to resurrect the use of um, different languages of you, as you've just described, some of which had been forbidden and others lost. How do you navigate the space of wanting to preserve language and history but also respecting protocol? I was really lucky. I, I mean, I worked with communities who were keen and actively trying to reclaim their language. Um, so I wasn't trying to come in and, you know, do anything amazing, really. You know, I just sort of provided a platform for people to share their, their knowledge and language. And because it is a complex story, it's really hard for communities to unpack um, colonisation, um, go through the records, go through the archives, go to their elders and, you know, decolonise that space. It is a really, really difficult, difficult thing to do. Um, and... Yeah, it, this project couldn't do that. So we just um, offered a platform and I, as always, totally blown away with how community responds um, to these projects um, and how they embrace things and how they warm to ideas. And I, I remember one um, one community that I worked with, I had to go to the land council meeting and talk, talk to them and describe them and... The, Land Council mob was just like, well, why? We don't have time for this. Like, we, this is a waste of our time. We can't really help you. You know, we've got our own things here. Um, and the language person got up and said, no, these are our objects that were lost. You know, they were destroyed in Sydney. Um, and those ancestors that made those objects need to know that we haven't forgotten them. They need to hear us saying their names and saying those words. And, and that was a really beautiful moment. That was, you know, and, and the community got behind it then and really supported it, which was great. It's it sort of um, seems like such a beautiful ephemeral kind of monument, and I guess the the notion of monuments and remembering is a really big deal at the moment. Um, Stan Grant just wrote that um, incredible article around America tearing down its racist history and we ignore ours, where he ponders heritage and hate when it comes to statues and monuments of um, both American and Australian history. How do you? think as an artist like how do you think we what what should we be doing in relation to the way in which we remember and how we memorialize things when it whether it's you know the amazing with secrecy and dispatch that was on at Campbelltown Art Centre that you know how do we remember say really quite awful um Australian history how how do you think we should move yeah, forward wow um <laughs> Just some light Sunday chat. <laughs> um, um, I, I, I say this, I, I just yeah. went to this um, uh, gallery for I did this incredible um, forum out at um, Western Sydney University and it was talking about how how we remember the partition between Pakistan and, and, and India and they had Pakistani artists and Indian artists talking about how we memorialise things and how we remember without it being, you know, too colonialist or speaking, mm. you know, to that particular history. And the idea of monuments came up as this, you know, it's it's a site that I think that maybe artists should be um, yeah. thinking about, not council workers. Yeah, know? yeah. I think what's important to remember is that um, we sometimes get caught in these absolute versions of history mm. um, and that it's one or the other, um, which is problematic. So, you know, as, if we see a statue of Macquarie, you know, it, it, we need to kind of, I guess, be able to understand that he wasn't great, and but he also was great. You know, there were some good things and bad things. He was a flawed human being. Um, you know, for Wiradjuri people, um, he came over the mountains, um, and 
for the for the time he was there, he he wasn't you know he actually you know he represented a, a kind of a better version of history than when when, when Governor Brisbane came in and declared martial law against us. Um, but then in Sydney, um, we know that he was engaged in you know and and signing off on those massacres. So. You know they're they're complex, and I guess what I get worried about is when people give us this absolute version. Like you know when we hear those politicians get up and tell us that Australia Day is the day we all get together and we're all meant to be happy and we all do this and we all do that. It's like well, no. Like we need to just make sure that you know that 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 day can be a whole bunch of things for a whole bunch of different people doing. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be this one absolute version of history. I think that's important. I think um. And I also think that we, you know, we need those abrasive moments in our history to rub up against because without them, you know, what are we? You know, like if we, rem- you know, I'm actually happy to have Australia Day there to, to, to bounce ideas off and to kind of challenge, you know, I feel like I need it there as something to kind of, you know, set, a, set some other things against, yeah. Um, we have just about um, run out of time, oh. but um, what's next for you? Oh, well, um, at the moment, I'm doing a really extraordinary project. Um, I was asked to go in and look at the collections and do a show or a project at the State Library. And, of course, um, they got more than they bargained on. I decided to bring in four elders from Sydney, four traditional owners from Sydney, including Uncle Chica. Um, and they've actually trawled through the collection and they've found things that interest them. And so for Uncle Chica, who is an extraordinary, extraordinary man, he in fact spent most of his life um, in the construction industry. So we went through and we found the Eastern Suburbs Railways, which he built. He poured all the concrete for that. Oh, wow. He poured all the concrete for the Gladesville Bridge. He worked on the railways. He poured a lot of concrete at, at um, Carriage Works. And so we were going through and finding those images um, of those um those construction sites. And so I think when people go to an Aboriginal show and see Uncle Chica talking about the Rio that's sitting inside all these concrete things, well, that'll be a challenge. But that's the reality of living in Sydney and for traditional owners today. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's a real, real pleasure having you in here. We're going to get back to our curated tracks by Minigraph, and this is Scram by Plump DJs.
You are listening to FBI Radio and this is Canvas, show about art and ideas and that was scrammed by Plump DJs, which Minnie Gruff, our um, curator, often creates work uh, w- with too. With soundtrack, oh my it's God. so manic and wonderful. <laughs> but we have a wonderful photographer in the studio named Gary Trin. Good morning, Hello. Gary. Hello, David. Good morning. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for coming in. Um, what do you think are the key elements that make a Gary Trin photograph? Um, <laughs> the, the key elements that I that my photographs, I think, contain, uh, I think, four things. Humour, um, there's playfulness, um, spontaneity, and I think honesty. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's true about your work. So you grew up as a skater. But when did you start taking photographs? When did that? Oh, I, the day I started taking photographs was around 1994 when I met a fellow skateboarder who was also a photographer and he was the one that taught me photography. Yeah, and we used to skate around and photograph our skateboarding friends doing tricks and stuff like that. Cool. And I think uh, a lot of people uh, like your no-nonsense approach. Your photographs, uh, they seem to capture the moment, right at that right moment, time and time again. And, and they are very funny, like you said. What do you think makes a, a good photograph? Oh, that's a tough, <laughs> really tough question. Um, there's no one ingredient to make a fo- good photograph. I think, um, I, think a, I think you know a good photograph when you, when you, once you've seen the photograph and it changes you. When you go to a show, you see the photograph or you see the body of work and then you walk out of the gallery and you feel different, you know, and all of a sudden you can see things that you weren't able to see before. You know, I think that's a really, that shows a really powerful body of work. And who are some of your favourite photographers? Oh, there are many. Um, you know, the the usual ones, Trent Park, um, Henry Cartier-Bresson, Elliot Erwitz, um, Paul Graham, um, I like what Justine Varga is doing at the moment in mm. Sydney. I think mm. she's, you know, she's really hitting uh, the right notes. Yeah. Yeah, Justine, can you describe Justine's work to, to those that don't know? Oh, it's, it's, it's very, it's a lot of the works made without a camera. Mm. It's very experimental and um, uh, it really pushes the boundary of what photography is and how it could be, how it could be. And um, yeah, it's... It's it's um they're it's, quite dense. They're like fields of color. It's yeah, in, there's an intensity to yeah the they're, work. They're quite conceptual and very personal. Mm. It's not um it's not it's something that it's she's doing something that most photographers aren't doing. You know, she doesn't even I don't think she considers herself a photographer. She considers herself a a fine art, art artist, mm. just working with the photography medium. And uh, are there any photographers on Instagram that you like to look oh, at? Oh, the usual ones. Um, Daniel Arnold, um, you know, some friends of mine, um, um, Oliver Lang, um, George Vogelopoulos, um, Sarah Panel, um, Ray Potts are some of my favourites on Instagram. Yeah, George is great. Yeah, he's really great. He's, he's recording um, the culture or the, the community of Western Sydney really, really well. You know, mm. he's, yeah. Particularly in areas of Auburn, which you... Auburn, Parramatta, you know, he's just photographing just the people, their lives, the families there. And so you you have a whole great series of works behind you. Many of them are set in the suburbs. 
um, making connections with things you wouldn't normally connect with, like, I guess, colour or shapes and forms you group together. And um, there was that, that house roller shutter series from a long time ago where you were photographing homes that seem almost menacing and they're hiding something mm. behind these imposing roller shutters. What drew you to, to that series? Oh, that was series was made a while ago, but um, I made that series in Auburn, um, where I was, where I grew up, um, and it came about because I was asked to photograph in Auburn for a different reason, and I was walking around the streets and I started noticing that a lot of the houses around Auburn were just shut off. You know, all all the all the windows had roller shutters down, all the doors were just you know completely fortified. And it really struck me, you know. And at the time, the community were going, the media was portraying that community as very hostile. You know, they were labeling, they were labeling a lot of the, the people that lived around the community as causing a lot of trouble, you know. And I think those homes kind of like reflected that, you know, those kind of community feeling. I think they, it caused that community to kind of shut itself down. And then there was that um, that crazy series where you hung around Pitt Street Mall and you asked to people to, well, photograph people w- with, what am I trying to say here? Where people, you were wearing a black jumper yeah. and you were photographing people that was wearing the exact same jumper. Where yeah. did that idea come from? That idea was a very, it was a funny idea, but it was very spur of the moment kind of thing. I was on the train and I noticed there was a guy that wore exactly the same black jumper as me. And I quickly walked uh, walked away from him because I didn't want to be seen, you know, to wear the same thing. I was a little bit embarrassed. And then, uh, and then just as a joke, I said to myself, oh, let's get a, let me try to get a photo with him and I'll, I'll send it to my girlfriend at the time, you know, so we can have a bit of a laugh. So I did that. And then I saw the photo on my, on the camera and I just thought it was really funny. And then I just immediately thought, well, what if for the rest of that day, if, if, if I came across anybody that had the same jumper as me, I would try to get a selfie with them, you know? (laughs) And so for the rest of the day, I just saw so many people with this like black jumper and I just asked them if I can get a photo of them and and we did, you know, and they created a body of work. And then there was the Bonsai Tree Power Line series. Yeah. Do you that, want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, that's that, pretty that, amazing. That work's being exhibited at the moment at um, the Australian Centre for Photography. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that was taken, that was photographed around the streets where I lived, you know, um, and I'd, I'd seen those trees um before, but it didn't occur to me that it was anything until I, I came up with the title for the, the work, and I, I called it Giant Bonsai. So immediately I thought, Giant Bonsai is like a, a hand reaching out you know, and cutting these trees into this kind of awkward shape. Yeah. And what are some um, more recent series? You've you've had graffiti on walls, and what what are you photographing at the moment? What's interesting you? Um, at the moment, I haven't. I've just. I haven't really been photographing that much. Um, at the moment, I'm just looking back over my archive of work and trying to understand it and trying to make new work from the photograph I've already taken. And you're painting a lot now. Yeah, I'm at Paramount really Art Studios. I have a studio there now. You've got a picture of someone on your um, front yeah, window. I have, I have a picture of you, David. Some people think that's your studio. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very bizarre. It's yeah, no, I, I've, been, I've been trying to teach myself how to paint 
yeah, just trying to broaden my artistic kind of medium. Are you working from your own photographs and reproducing them? In I the started. Paintings? I started off doing that, and then mm. I gradually just diverged out of that. Yeah. And so walking is like the key ingredient to your practice. You you take lots of walks, long walks. Um, you can often see you see you around Parramatta Road. Mm. Where where did this where did this start? The walking. Yeah. The walking was just an excuse to get out there and make photographs, you know. I find it very therapeutic when I walk, you know. Um, I, I just enjoy the the time to myself, you know, and the, the chance to get out there and look and see things and experience things. And there's this um this wonderful photograph of a cat stretched out, stretching itself out. Looks like it's levitating <laughs> on a wire gate in the afternoon sun. And it ha- your your is there any photographs that you really feel proud of? Like it was worth, you know, the seven hours of walking today that you've really captured it right at that moment. I guess there's so many, but what comes yeah, to mind? There, there's, there is so many, but there's actually a photograph that I took maybe a block away from the studios here, just around the corner here, that I'm really proud of. Um, I, I like finding things that are just within my kind of surrounding environment. Um, so that's one of them. It's just it's literally around the corner from here. I took a really great photograph. What was it? It was just, well, it's two signs and it looks like a car ran into them. And so the two signs were, I think when they first was constructed, they were upright. And then because the car ran into them, they're both, uh, I mean, kind of leaning, you know, in one way. It's hard to describe, but yeah, it's... Yeah, the, it's hard to describe your work. It is a visual language that you've developed. It's really extraordinary. Recently, I bumped into you at Glebe Markets and you were photog- we were chasing animals. What were you doing there? Yeah, that was for a project that's currently on at Customs House called um, Something Else is Alive. Um, and I was asked by Glenn Barkley to, um, to create a body of work um, to do with kind of our... Um, do with animals in the city and how we interact with them. Yeah, so that was that, that show. And what do some of these images look like? Is it people just it's, having it's, little intimate moments with their poochies? Yeah. It, David and <laughs> Tina. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's just animals kind of, you know, caught off guard, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's sweet. Yeah. The, my, the brief I got given by Glenn was to uh, just photograph animals in the LGA um, and do it my way, you know. Oh, beautiful. Um, Gary, I just wanted to ask, do you still take shots of skaters around town? I don't. I, I, I wish I could. I'm, I'm out of that loop, you know. I'm, I'm too old. <laughs> I, can't, I can't, like, I don't know the lingo anymore. I can't, hang out, I can't hang with those kids anymore. You can't pop shove it with the kids. No, I can't. <laughs> I wish I could. And that's a skater from way back we just oh, learned this yeah. morning. She's got, try to be. She, how many, she got like, 20 boards. Yeah, I've got a lot of skateboards. But I had a really bad accident when I was with my 10-year-old cousin trying to drop in in Tuggeranong and... Canberra, so smash my face up. <laughs> you couldn't tell. Oh, thanks so much, David. <laughs> um, hey, Gary, thanks so much for uh, joining us this morning. We'll put lots of samples of Gary's work um, up on our Facebook page. We're going to get back to our curated tracks. Uh, this is Vapor by Marcus Whale. <laughs> Thank you. 
That was Vapor by Marcus Whale. And a big shout-out to Marcus, who's appearing in one of my photographs that you can see at Sydney Contemporary, opening in September. <laughs> now, in the studio, we have three artists who are appearing in the 2017... We have two artists, I apologise. In the 2017 edition of Primavera, an annual curated showcase of Australian artists under 35 years of age at the Museum of Contemporary Art down in Circular Quay. This year was curated by, curated by Parramatta's own Sophia Koyujim, and today we are speaking to Laura Homarsh and Kynan Tan. Welcome to the studio, guys. Now, each year the curators scours the country for their pick of artists under 25, 35, sorry. And uh, this year we have artists from all over the country, from all different backgrounds. Laura, as an artist from Tasmania, what was the selection process like for you? 
Well, Sophia actually sent me an email um, saying that she was going to come down to Tasmania for a studio visit and asking me for some tips on Hobart. And at that point, I had to actually reply and say, that's really great. I'm really glad you're going down to Tasmania, but um, I'm actually based in the UK now. So I moved to the UK in 2014 <laughs> from Hobart. But um, actually, that was great that she um, got back in touch with me and we had a Skype interview and, well, not interview, just Skype chat about my work. Um, and yeah, she was just really loved the film and wanted it in anyway so we sort of made it happen regardless that's a pretty rigorous uh, process that she took to find artists like w- w- you were saying before that she looked at archives of Ari so yeah is that how she got to you? yeah I think Sophia's really um, with this program really tried to look um, outside the main institutions and rather than asking kind of key tutorial figures she's gone through archives of Ari backgrounds and she found me through my involvement with Constance when I lived in Hobart and I know the big WA cohorts come from her contacting art spaces over there. So that's kind of an exciting point of differentiation, I think, maybe from previous Primaveras, yeah. Now, this is a personal bias of mine because I'm also from Perth and I love that there's so many Perth artists in this show. Yeah. And, Laura, you're also originally from WA. What was yeah. it like for you practising yeah. in, in Perth before moving to Tasmania? Yeah, I mean, I moved... So I did my undergrad in Perth at um, the University of Western Australia and I left when I was... Uh, I guess I was 22, so um, I went to Tasmania and did my honours. Um, and I guess, I don't know, I I mean, Perth was great, but I felt that I needed to go somewhere else, have some more influence, um, meet some other people. And Tasmania just really stood out to me as being somewhere where I, I know there was an exciting arts community, I could um, have a sustainable lifestyle and just really focus on my practice. And then, of course, um, Mona opened and there was kind of this cultural shift happening in the state. So... I do love Perth and I definitely have strong connections to WA artists. So, um, yeah, I kind of consider myself a bit of both, really. <laughs> <laughs> and and Kynan, as also part of the Perth cohort, um, we've, we've known each other a little while. Like, I think I remember our first meeting at a party in Perth where we exchanged jokes for half an hour. It's mostly you, I've yeah. been telling these jokes. No, no, it was all you for sure, <laughs> definitely. I, th- I remember that was like a backyard in Leaderville, I think, you know. That was. Good old Perth house party. It always is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We were yeah, both sober as judges sitting on the couch, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I, rem- I remember that moment. It was very nice. And yeah, I remember you being very funny and a little bit vulgar, but you know. Oh, never. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've since relocated to Sydney. What motivated that move? Oh, uh, yeah, so I moved over about was two and a half years ago, um, you know, partly to start a PhD, uh, which I'm still going with, um, but also, um, you know, to have a change of scene and to work with some collaborators um, and to, I don't know, experience a sort of different city in in Australia. I mean, I still do work in Perth a fair bit and I still love Perth and um, miss it sometimes and, you know, especially miss the, the different artistic communities there, especially in sound and dance and and, um, and of course, visual art as well. Uh, personally, I, I found it quite difficult to, s- to sustain myself uh, and my practice in Perth. And I found the tyranny of distance a bit of a hindrance to my practice. How did you find working in Perth? Yeah, there was definitely a little bit of that. Like I found I was traveling a lot to Melbourne and Sydney to do like music performances and that kind of thing. But I guess um, when I was in Perth, like I did find it to be, I found it quite good, like in terms of, um, yeah, I, I was working with a lot of different different groups, I think, and maybe that's what w- was working for me in Perth. But at, at a certain point, I did feel like it would be good to expand from there. And I think that's the way a lot of Perth artists feel, um, you know, and sort of being able to travel, if you can, being able to travel back and forth between other cities and also 
have a solid base in Perth, it seems to work for some people. I like to think that we're an outward looking bunch, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Laura, actually, I'll throw that question to you as well, but uh, with Tasmania, mm. was there much of a difference between Perth and Tasmania? And what was it to, mm. a, what, uh, kind of a funny word, but what was the scene like yeah. in Tasmania? I, I certainly think there was a different um, feel down there. I guess having, only having one major art school in Hobart as opposed to NWA where there's two or three kind of institutions and you sort of are in your separate groups and you don't cross over so much. Um, Perth has one art school, so, you know, people would finish up on a Friday and they'll all head to the op- the one opening that was happening in town that day. And so because of that, there was a really strong community and people were really um, welcoming for anyone who moved down there, particularly, you know, this is talking pre-Mona days. So people were excited that young people were moving and wanting to practice and make work in the city. Um, and that really continued. I think there's a really um, close community around the Aries that, um, happened down there. The Sawtooth and Launceston and Constance in Hobart have a really strong relationship. And um, yeah, people really want to support the young people who are staying there and making work. Um, so yeah, it was a really great place to make work and it really helped develop my practice down there. But I guess maybe a bit like with Kind and Perth, I sort of reached, I don't know, a bit of a glass ceiling. I felt like I needed to go beyond. What What do you think the um, that Mona has done to the arts ecology in Tassie? Um, it's, uh, I, mean, <laughs> 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 I have mixed opinions on Mona and, you know, Mona supported me, you know, I worked there for four or five years, it enabled me to stay in Tasmania and it, d- it does that for a lot of young artists, like they graduate and there's jobs. Previous to that, there wasn't, you know, when I first moved there, I couldn't even get a job in a fish and chip shop, there was just no employment. So for that, to be having young people have access to a job in the arts, whether it's standing on the floor of a gallery or, you know, some people have moved up. But, um... I also think there's a lot of focus on Mona and I'm really concerned about the shift in funding, particularly with local council. Um, and I think, you know, there's a risk of it being the privatisation of creativity when if you're giving so much focus and energy to one man's vision, one man's vision. So, I, yeah, I have mixed opinions about Mona. In some ways, it's been, it's great. It's really great what it's doing for the state. It's really great the tourism boom that's happened down there. and the but potentially overshadows some of these Aries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people are still doing stuff and making great work and it's encouraging more people to move down there, which is fantastic. But, um, yeah, I think there's just maybe there's a responsibility that needs a conversation needs to happen in terms of state funding and um, local funding and more emphasis brought on spaces that younger artists have access to and, you know, can curate their own programs rather than sort of this hierarchical model. And And... To throw it back to you for a second, kind of like I know that um, we moved to Sydney around the same time and to do post grad, and you're at the pointy end of your PhD. Now, talking to some people, I know that it can be quite hard to balance the two. How have you found balancing uh, doing your PhD and uh, having a practice? Yeah, so I've got yeah about a year left to go, so I guess it is getting to the pointy end. But I think it's actually been fairly manageable in terms of, or it is fairly manageable to try and finish it on time, which I, I know a lot of PhD students haven't experienced. Um, but yeah, in terms of balancing the practice and sort of theoretical side, I guess I've kind of tried to make the practice the priority for a lot of a lot of the time. And something that I found really worked for me was to to really take like blocks of time where I would really focus on practice. Then after that block of time, try and um, let the writing and um, thinking feed feed back into the practice or vice versa. Um, so. Um, yeah, I guess just making it sort of a priority to to make work and, and to let that be the sort of research and let that be the exploration of ideas was, was sort of key for me. Um, yeah, but, you know, we'll see how I go in the next 12 months. <laughs> and Laura, your practice is quite performative. 
how is that going to be articulated at um at Primavera? Well, I'm actually showing a film. Um, it's a 16 millimeter film. Um, so I guess throughout my practice, I've sort of looked at ways to document performative action. And I, you know, I say I work with performance, but it's very much, it's very rarely live. Um, so in this case, it's a performance in such in that I'm in the work. It's performative in that I'm um, documenting myself making the work. Um, so yeah, I'm present in it, but. Um, yeah, it's shown as a film. How does it work with a 16mm film? Like, I'm going to get in the, like, the practical side of things. Mm. Does it... I imagine it can't go on repeat like a DVD. So does someone come in and change the Yeah, change so, the stop? like, um, with... I guess there's been a sort of resurgence in um, artists working with film and part, um, part of which there's been sort of move to put working galleries rather than screening context. So... Um, they develop these loopers where you're basically like hacking a 16mm projector and enabling the film to sort of, you know, splice it start to end and, and, and loop on in on itself. So um, it's quite a beautiful object in itself having this film loop sort of in the space. Hopefully it doesn't overshadow the film. But yeah, it's a nice way of working. And what can we expect from you, Kynan? Uh For Primavera, I've made um, sort of two new works that are very closely linked. Um, one of them is a... Uh, computer-generated 3D simulation of a computer hard drive being crushed. Um, and the other work is a sort of, um, is an audiovisual work that's kind of like a speculative and poetic imagining of data being accessed and read and structuring things and then kind of the real world kind of collapsing back into data and, and being erased. Um, and both of those works are kind of dealing with ideas of how data structures experience and how it can be a sort of topological entity, but also of how um, we have a really strange relationship with data. Like we think of, um, we think of data as really ephemeral and we don't often give it a material basis, but it is actually like, you know, metallic and it is metal and plastic and um, silicon microchips and that kind of thing. Um, and we, we just sort of feel quite strangely about data and its materiality and ephemerality. Like we feel that um, it, you know, on, at one point, um, data could, all of our data could just instantly disappear, but we also at the same time feel that data will last forever and like governments will keep data on its citizens forever. And, um, you will never be able to escape anything you do because it's, it's recorded in, in a sort of digital format. So I'm going to kind of tapping into those ideas with, um, with my new work. This is sort of an aside, but I, I feel like I should do a public service announcement. It's not even a public service announcement. No one follows me on Twitter. I've only got a couple of followers. But <laughs> somebody's hacked into my account and then changed the email address associated with it. So I don't know who's in there at the moment and what they're saying, but I'm really nervous. And I've emailed Twitter, but I feel like it's all going <laughs> to, shit's going to hit the fan. <laughs> email Twitter, someone's stealing your data. Someone's Watch taking out. my data. Watch yeah. out. <laughs> and another data thing is I accidentally synced my mum's computer to mine. So I don't hope she doesn't get my internet search history. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so um, working with Sophia, the curator, I, like, I'm sure she's not listening, so you can, you, you can keep it between us. What's your, what does she like to work with? <laughs> oh, she's been brilliant. She's been really supportive. Um, obviously, I've been, as I say, I'm living in the UK at the moment, so, you know, 10-hour time difference. So she's been... Did she do a studio visit there? She, she, well, I'm sure she would love to have. That would have been great. <laughs> I would have loved to have her. But, um, you know, she's been getting up at all hours of the morning to Skype me before I go to my day job. And, um, yeah, as I said before, it's just really nice to work with someone who's interested in sort of seeking out artists who maybe operate in different sort of circles or who aren't so known in the New South Wales scene as well. So... Yeah, Sophia's been amazing. She's so lovely and really great to work with. And I think, yeah, that research process where she, you know, took a, went and travelled quite far and spoke to a huge range of people and yeah. did a lot of research was, was really encouraging. Like when you're kind of 
picked from that that very vast list yeah, um, yeah. to be included in a show like this. Yeah. It's it's um yeah really. I know being based in Hobart, uh, it was like well known that the Primavera curators only came down every four years or so. So you're sort of like on a cycle. It's like, oh, am I going to get chosen for a studio visit in a four-year cycle? So it was really nice to just get an email out of the blue being like, oh, I really like your work. Can we chat? So, That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And have you guys met many of the other artists in there yet? Um, met a couple. I met some during install. Um, they're, they're really lovely. Um, but yeah, looking forward to meeting them properly over this week and, and you know, maybe sharing you know, yeah. sharing this experience, which will hopefully, yeah, you know. there's lots of nice overlaps between the work, even though, like, materiality-wise, they're quite different processes. But, um, yeah, it's, it'll be nice to have a chat. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really pumped to see Nicole Forshee's work. She was a curator of the Primavera I was in, and I'm really looking forward to what she what she produces. Mm-hmm. Hey, I, thank you so much for, for joining us this morning. Um, we're going to put all the details of Primavera up on um, our Canvas Facebook page. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Um, we're going to get back to our curated tracks by Minigraph, and this is Fake by Ox. Things I can get. All I be, 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 all I
That was Fake by Oxen. You're listening to Canvas on FBI 94.5. What a bloody big show we had. Um, thank you for listening and thank you to all our guests, Minnie Graff, Jonathan Jones, Gary Trin, Laura Hindmarsh and Kynan Tan. Canvas is brought to you by a team of artists, Abdul Abdullah, David Capra, Nat Randall and uh, Aurora Scott, our executive producer. Hey, what is there anything cool happening this week? Primavera. 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 David, what are you doing this week? <laughs> no, I'm just thinking. I'm not sure. I'm sure there's lots to see. We'll yeah. put it up on our Facebook yeah, we'll page. Put it up <laughs> I'm going to New Zealand. Seriously? Oh, yeah, I've got a show at Pataka Art Museum. Oh my god, that's cool. It should be fun. I've never been to New Zealand before. Wow. It should be really good. You should check in with Minigraph because she's got she's got the Connex. Yeah, the Connex. <laughs> um, we're going to get back to our curated tracks. Speaking of Minigraph, this is. For what it's worth, by Buffalo Springfield. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. There's something happening here, but what it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. Telling me I got to beware. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody, look what's going down. There's bad lines being drawn, and nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Young people speak in their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind the time we stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down What a field day for the heat and people in the street Singing songs and they carrying signs Mostly say hooray for our side It's time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.